Hi, everybody. Welcome to the February 28, 2020 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for joining us. As always, we're going to get started with a quick take. This time, let's take a look at the fact that Companies at Union Station posting that the main, that the space in the main hall was for paying customers only, and then RTD immediately stepping in saying, no, it is actually open to the public. Patty Cahoon from Westward, uh, Union Station, as big and fancy as it is right now, is still a train station, right? Train and bus station, and there are buses going all the time. So it is something RTD has purview over. Now, to be uh, the people who run Union Station did say that travelers could sit on those really comfy benches in the back if they weren't spending money and they were actually about to get on a get on a bus. This was one that you. Th- you would have seen it coming sooner because with the number of homeless who are trying to get out of the cold, with the number of people who just like hanging out there in Denver's living room as it's billed, you thought the clash would come sooner. It took five years, but it did hit. David Coble from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. Uh, what do you think, what, where it comes down to about the, the public's right to be in a public space, what are some of the basic common uh, limitations that we well, should know about? Well, and, and they do have the right to be in the, in the public space and... Um, the thing on the other side is there are a minority of the people who are the non-customers and a, a minority, I think, of the homeless people in, in that who really abuse it and ruin the space for everyone. And that's the, the challenge um, all, all public spaces have to, to face. Eric Sonnen, political analyst, also a weekly columnist at Colorado Politics. It feels to me that RTD stopped a PR disaster at least before it could really get spinning out of control. Uh, what do you think about how they stepped in? Yeah, probably damned if you do, damned if you don't. I mean, I don't think the issue the merchants have there is necessarily with the travelers waiting to get a bus or waiting to get a train. Obviously, as David and Patty have alluded to, it's with the homeless population, and you want to maintain a certain environment there, but yet it is a public facility, so it's it's that tension. Uh, I'm curious, anything that is labeled Great Hall these days, whether it's Great Hall at Union Station or Great Hall at DIA, is a mess at the moment. <laughs> Rounding up the panel, Natasha Gardner, articles at her 5280. Natasha, it's uh, Denver's living room, it's this great space, but it's also right in the middle of the epicenter of uh, downtown Denver, which includes a lot of the public, whether they be buying a $5 uh, cocktail or not. What do you think? Well, I think it's exactly that. As a, as an, a person who spent a lot of time in Union Station, both as a customer and someone who just has to waste 10 minutes sometimes, there's only so much caffeine that I can drink and so many bottled waters that I can order. So I, I understand the sort of problems that, that exist here. Um, I do think that it probably highlights the fact, and this is a conversation we have on the show regularly, that Denver still has so many conversations and so many things that we have to um, deal with related to the homelessness crisis in this city. And this um, Union Station discussion just illuminates those again. Super Tuesday is finally upon us. Three days from now, Colorado will join 13 other states in voting in presidential primaries. Here in Colorado, results from the Magellan poll released this week show Bernie Sanders leading at 27 percent, with Elizabeth Warren coming in second at 15 percent, and Pete Buttigieg quickly, uh, 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 very quickly behind at 12 percent. Patty, uh, we are three days away from finally being able to have Colorado's voice heard. Uh, is it going to make a difference in the big scheme of Super Tuesday? We forget that Colorado is really not that huge a state. So when you have all those other states voting, 
we are not going to make a really big dent in what's going on. Uh, I think Bernie Sanders coming in kind of where he was four years ago. What's fascinating is last time it was the caucus, which basically lasted almost a year by the time they were done counting, if you remembered how that worked. This year, for the first time, we actually have the primary. We're part of Super Tuesday officially that way. We've got a couple other things. Unaffiliated voters can still turn in a ballot. You have to go to a vote center, but you can, if you're unaffiliated, choose to vote Democrat, vote um, Republican in the primary. 17-year-olds who are going to be 18 by next November for the election can vote too. So I think the vote centers are going to be very busy on Tuesday. Maybe not as busy as the caucus locations were last time, but maybe not as busy as DIA was with all the different candidates we had passing through last week. But when all is said and done, Bernie will come out. I think that poll is going to be pretty accurate. And the big news will be in other states. David, sticking here with Colorado, if I think a few months ago people thought maybe Joe Biden was going to clear out the moderate lane and be the moderate candidate while you still had maybe Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders fighting over the, the uh, left wing of the party. It seems just the opposite, where Bernie's really coalesced the left wing and there's a lot more moderates running. Do you think they'd be more competitive in Colorado if we were down to just one or two moderates? Well, let's talk about where the the competition is to watch on election night. And the number to follow is 15%. There are 14 delegates that will be chosen on a statewide basis and 44 delegates that will be split up among the seven congressional districts. Within the district and then all separately within the state, if you get under 15%, then you get nothing. So imagine a congressional district or the state where, say, Bernie gets 35 percent and then there's three or four others clustered between 8 and 14 percent. They get nothing. Bernie gets 100 percent of that because if he's the only one in the unit who finishes over 15 percent, then then you get all the delegates. The proportional representation only applies for those who cross the 15 percent threshold. That's that's the key thing to watch. So we've got our 14 national delegates, 14 statewide, 44 congressional de- uh, based, nine based for, nine from party leaders and elected officials who are allocated in the same way the state is, and 13 what they call super delegates, you know, congressional representatives, uh, Democratic National Committee members. We don't know who they will be for the total 80 person delegation, but we do know by the state rules how they will be allocated. It'll be a 50-50 split between male and female, and that's absolutely rigid at every step in the selection process. Uh, that depend, it, What category you're in depends on how you identify. It's not a biological test. If you are non-binary, you can actually get the male slot or the female slot within the relevant uh, selection. And then we, we finally get to the national convention. There have to be, by the quota system, two people who with a labor background, three veterans, eight blacks, 10 LGBTQ, and 23 Hispanics. So we know the the makeup of the Colorado delegation, even though we don't know exactly who will be in it. Well, Eric, clearly it's just that simple. So um, (laughs) when when, uh, Colorado was not always on Super Tuesday. So uh, now that we are, do we have greater influence? Or being one of uh, 14 states, uh, is that uh, diluted a little bit? You could argue it either way. I think we have greater influence that we are a primary state as opposed to a caucus state. As a general rule, we have greater influence going earlier as opposed to going later and being a postscript. Although in this particular year, later states, the Pennsylvanias and Oregons of the world, may be all important states come end of April and even into the middle of May. But as a general rule, earlier beats uh, earlier beats later. 
the, the fundamental issue here is, and I, I agree with you, I think the poll, or with David, I think the poll will largely be borne out. Uh, the fundamental problem is you have Bernie having captured that one wing of the party almost exclusively, while the other lane, the other path, whatever word you want to use, is very clogged and crowded and congested and fractured. And that's the fundamental dynamic. One scenario is that Bernie Sanders is going to show up in Milwaukee with 50% plus one, and the thing is over and he's the nominee. I think the more likely scenario is that we're headed to some race where Bernie Sanders accumulates a plurality, but not a majority. And I've been advancing this idea of what I call 35 versus 45. And I mean whether he shows up in Milwaukee with 45%, a 45% plurality or some number in that ballpark, where it's not 50, but he's probably unstoppable and the price for trying to stop him would be one the party wouldn't be willing to pay. Or whether he shows up closer to that 35% mark, in which case all bets are off and I would think it would move away from him and not toward him. And I think that is what is at stake here. And I, just lastly, to disagree a little bit with Patty, Colorado is not California, not Texas. It's not going to be the epicenter of Super Tuesday, but it's an important state. It's up there with North Carolina, Virginia, and some others in terms of where the media is going to be focused. Natasha, this is the first Super, Tuesday, first Super Tuesday for Colorado, but also the first one where independents can get involved. They can only pick one. You cannot vote for Democrat and Republican. You have to pick one ballot. Uh, but uh, that is going to be a whole different flavor to this. What do you, how do you think that's going to affect things? Well, if I knew that answer, I would be working on a campaign probably or just, you know, <laughs> buying lottery tickets left and right. I, I will say that that's gonna, it should have a huge impact. And, and, and as these things go on, we'll learn more about how unaffiliated voters impact our elections. Um, in, in general, I think some post, um, post analysis should focus on how many people are making their decisions, um, in sort of real time. There's gonna be a lot of money pouring into the state in the next few days. But how many of those voters are still undecided and how many of them really have known who they were voting for even weeks or even months ahead of this time. I do think that on on the actual day when the ballots are counted, the people who might be most interested in it are those Senate hopefuls that are running against Cory Gardner and Cory Gardner himself. These names don't all get thrown into the mix until November when they're on that ballot together. But ultimately, who's at the top of that ticket is going to impact all of those races. So that might be the biggest part of the discussion in Colorado is how who we choose and who the nation chooses to run against um, Donald Trump will impact all the other races. The Colorado legislature officially passed the bill to ban the death penalty this week. Governor Polis is expected to sign the bill, making Colorado the 22nd state to ban capital punishment. Now, at the time of taping right now, the taping card inside out, it is reportedly uh, shown that Governor Polis is going to commute the sentences of the prisoners on death row right now. There's three of them there. David, uh, what do you think of the bill passing and that the governor is going to, again, reportedly at noon on Friday, uh, commute the sentences of those remaining on death row? Well, there's obviously three heinous murders who, who got away with murder, two, two of them who killed uh, the, the son of uh, State Senator Rhonda Fields. Uh, I think there's going to be a continuing controversy over how this was done. I mean, the death penalty is a moral issue, and I think there are good arguments on both sides. But the, the Colorado pattern is the pattern that's been throughout the Western world of how it's been repealed, never by the popular will of the people. Republicans wanted to send this out to the people as a referendum. It's always been from, from the elite, from the top down, for people who have a sense that their moral judgments are superior uh, to those of, of the voters in, in general. 
Um, some people say that the death penalty can't possibly be a deterrent. I just suggest a, uh, an experiment. Let's, instead of full repeal, repeal it for everything except murders committed on Tuesday. And you see if that changes how many murders happen on Tuesday. That's an interesting legal argument there. Eric, as you look at this as a, as a political point, this was not the first time uh, Democrats had ever wanted to repeal a death penalty. But they got it through, especially with a couple of folks in their own camp, popular lawmakers, uh, who were against it. Were you surprised at their success? No, I wasn't surprised at their success. You've seen this building. Uh, I've been critical of Governor Polis on other issues, but on this one... There's been momentum and, and huge consensus among Democrats on this issue for many years. His predecessor, John Hickenlooper, promised, quote, a conversation on the death penalty. That conversation never really happened. He, Hickenlooper's approach was just to leave those inmates on death row in sort of a limbo, saying, you're okay as long as I'm governor, but all bets are off after I'm governor, which I don't think was the way to handle it. Whether you agree or disagree with the Democrats' conclusion on this issue, and they had, a, I think, a couple Republican votes are, uh, in the House. Maybe I'm wrong on that. Um, at least they took a forthright position. I think there's some to be said for that. The last inmate Colorado executed was Gary Lee Davis, I believe, and I think that was in the mid-'80s, maybe late-'80s under Roy Romer's governorship. So we're talking somewhat ancient history here. There has not been anyone executed since. I don't think whether it is a moral punishment, others can argue. It is not a practical punishment in this day and age. My only issue is if we're going to move toward life imprisonment, let's make life imprisonment truly mean life without parole, without any possibility of parole, because in too many other states, life imprisonment doesn't always mean life. Natasha, we have a representative democracy, but is this a moral question that should have gone to the voters? Well, it's a conversation in Colorado that's that's been going on for years. You know, I, I definitely was reading reports um, to the, the, of how many hours were spent on this discussion this particular week. And if you extend that to last year and the years before that and the years before that, this is not a conversation that Colorado is coming to um, just quickly um, uh, or not thinking about pretty heavily. And it's been a part of many of our campaigns, too. It's a question that candidates have been asked for years. Um, as someone who's covered this for, for over a decade, uh, one of the things that I did this week was go back to an early story that I, that I wrote and, and thinking about the three prisoners that this this um, potential change um, would impact now if, if Polis makes this decision. Um, in particular, um, there used to be more people on death row, and as early as 2002, in fact, there were five other individuals, and their sentences were commuted because they were um, sentenced under a three-panel judge um, situation instead of a jury, and that was deemed unconstitutional. Those those um, sentences were changed, and for me, it's just it's an interesting moment because it's it's not the death penalty conversation is never just this one time. It reflects a whole history behind it. Um, and if anyone is watching this right now, I would, I, in thinking about that, I would encourage them. There's been a lot of information over the years written about all of these topics to just sort of read up on what brought us to 2020 and this decision today. Patty, how does this affect folks looking back at John Hickenlooper's decision to basically pass on what he's going to do with Nathan Dunlap waiting to this point? It could come up again in the Senate race, but I think people have moved beyond where he was on that. In essence, we haven't, uh, it's a moral issue, but practically we haven't had a death penalty in Colorado for really 20 years since Gary Davis was killed. 
there because of legal appeals, because of all the other legal issues, it just hasn't happened. So at this point, I don't think you're getting away with murder if you're locked up for life and you're surely, and you are definitely locked up for life. But um, I think in reality, it is, we didn't have a death penalty anyway, so I think it will work out. It looks like the Colorado paid family leave bill will die before it's even officially introduced. Two of its co-sponsors have abandoned the bill, stating it would not help their constituents, particularly women of color. They made this decision after Governor Polis successfully pushed for the bill to change from instituting a public program to instead mandating businesses to purchase private insurance. Eric, with all the things the Democrats have been able to get done, owning the House, the Senate, and the governorship, were you surprised that this thing, seemingly at this point, has fallen apart? Yeah, I was. I thought they might be able, that this would be the year they might be able to put it together. Just very two very quick points, Dominic. One is, in some ways, the Democrats, particularly the left of the Democratic Party, is reminding me of Republicans on this issue in the sense of letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. And instead of getting a bill that doesn't do everything they want, but at least moves that ball forward and advantages a significant number of Coloradans, because it is not a perfect bill in their mind, Angela Williams, Monica Duran, both co-sponsors, have pulled off the bill, and there probably are not Democratic votes there. So, again, we're perfect and good, and, and, um, and, and that comparison. Secondly, the big issue is, does this become a ballot issue? They have filed it. Do they now have the money and the willpower and the political support to take it directly to the voters, in which case it will be an interesting fall? Natasha, does this become a bigger headline of if it ultimately fails at a legislature? Um, yes, just because I think it's unresolved. I think that there's a need and an interest <coughs> to continue to have these conversations. You know, as a parent myself, I, I kind of joke with people who are expectant parents about forget the nine months and expecting book. What you really need to focus on is child care. And you need to focus on what you do on sick days and you need to focus on leave. And, and gosh forbid that one of your parents gets sick. I mean, everyone, and, and I do it in a joking manner, but it's extremely serious, the cost of, of all of these things. Um, and, and then the possibility and the benefits we see with employers who are flexible and able to do that, um, to, to have workers that are, are able to return to the workplace after a short um, period off. There's so many facets of this conversation that I don't think I could summarize it and the amount of time that I have here today. And that's exactly why this conversation is going to continue, maybe to the ballot, but certainly just around our dinner tables. Patty, it feels that whether the bill's going to live or die will start with what Governor Polis is going to get his way. Uh, and that's, that's, a, that's a lot of impact. It's different from past governors. Is it the right move for Polis in this situation? Well, I think Polis is thinking about businesses both large and small. For small businesses in this state, they are really feeling crunched by a variety of things, and that was going to be one of the issues that came up here. I think, actually, I predicted this was going to fall. It was just too complicated this year to really work it out, and there are other things on the agenda that actually will rise to the top. David, did Governor Polis' libertarian streak get the best of his fellow Democrats? I don't know, but it's uh, it's sure good for opportunity in Colorado that this hopefully won't, won't advance. Uh, a business that, say, has 500 people, employees, they often do offer these kinds of leaves because it helps them attract more employees. And it essentially means you'll have 500 nominal employees and maybe 490 of them will actually be working and the other 10 will be cycling through leaves. That, that's fine at that, at that size if the business can afford it. But this proposal would start at companies with 20 employees and eventually go down to one individual with one employee. And they've talked about things the saying if you work for three months for just one other person, then after the three months, you get up to 14 weeks 
of paid leave at 90%. That is an outstanding way to destroy small business for- formation and kill opportunity, and it moves us away from a society where people can start their own businesses and more into things where it's more like in South Korea and you can just be a cog for some large corporation. This week marks the 25th anniversary of the opening of Denver International Airport. And like most folks at 25, it doesn't exactly have everything put together. Uh, (laughs) This week also marks the restart of renovations that were first botched by the Spanish firm Ferrovia. And the Denver City Council approved a contract with local firm Hensel Phelps Phelps, to try to fix the mess. Uh, Natasha, we'll start with you on this one. DAA at 25, a lot of things to do. Uh, How do you mark its anniversary? Well, interestingly, I think, oh, yes, there's all these headlines right now. We've spent a lot of time at this table discussing what's going wrong, particularly with the renovations. For me, I think it's a moment to reflect back on what this move, which to the seemingly middle-of-nowhere airport, has done to the city. And one of the things is it literally created an an echo. You know, we have the mountains on the west side of of the metro, and on the east side of the metro, we now have these canopy landscapes, which were a mistake that turned out well in the end. So not all bad things (laughs) end in disasters. Um, But it created this space that expanded the metro in ways that I think that some people in the city and state saw and then other people are realizing now. We're seeing that with the growth of Aurora, of course, but also with Commerce City and Brighton um, increases in Denver as well. This has just been such a transformative experience. Um, and, and that's, I think, one of the interesting things as I'm watching the coverage come down this weekend. And then, of course, the complaints, as we all um, probably have had baggage problems or flight delays or anything else, it's still an airport. Um, But for what it is, it's a pretty nice airport. Patty, uh, Western had a lot of great content on this, including your interview with uh, former Mayor Federico Pena. Uh, Tell us what that was like and other thoughts on this issue. Well, it's so interesting thinking about Federico Pena, the fact that he even was elected mayor, which was so unlikely, and that he originally thought expanding onto Rocky Mountain Arsenal made sense, as did most of the people in the metro area then they suddenly realized it wasn't going to work that way for a variety of reasons, including lawsuits and including just proximity to the metro area. But the idea of building 26 miles out from Denver, downtown Denver at the time, seemed so crazy. There were so many different hurdles. Just going back over that history was amazing what they managed to accomplish, what Pena managed to accomplish, what Webb did finally finish, and the fact that now we can't even finish a shopping mall on schedule that's going to take over that really wonderful, great terminal under the roof. Uh, David, looking back at 25 years and the current issues right now with Hensel Phelps coming to clean up work, which is certainly not going to be cheap, uh, take your shot. The Denver airport from the Pena administration onward has never been managed for the convenience of Denver air travelers. The new airport is definitely a better airport to connect through for if, if you're not a Coloradan. Um, and I, I disagree with what Mayor Pena claimed. Stapleton could have been renovated, upgraded, added runways at vastly lower cost, and you'd have a much closer airport for the convenience of, of Denver travelers. But N- Natasha makes a key point. The, the best thing that happened uh, was not that DIA was built, but that it did open up this, the Stapleton neighborhood, which has turned out great and is a real not only anchor for it, its own area, but really brings up the whole of North Denver. Erica, how long before the folks at DIA can take a sigh of relief and uh, embrace their life post-25? Uh, maybe 30. <laughs> Hopefully by uh, year 30 they can do that. I look at these 25 years and I just divide it up into chunks. 
I think the infancy, newborn stage was rough. The baggage system and everything else, that first several months, maybe a year or so. Then you had a very substantial period where this was an operating, functioning airport. Yes, the people of Denver had to get used to a longer commute time to get out there, and now the train has been an asset to that, et cetera. But basically, it was a world-class airport and compared very favorably with other airports around the country. And then you get to about year 22 or somewhere in that ballpark, and it all sort of went south and has become this eyesore and dysfunctional mess that they're just trying to dig their way out of. And they have to do the digging before they can even build the shopping mall that apparently is the future. And apparently got a credit card at 22 right out of college. I mean, immediately maxed out that one. So I guess there's a lot of folks that can relate. Let's get to our favorite part of the show rather quickly. Disgrace of the week. As always, Ms. Cahoon, please start us off. Well, Denver is without a manager of safety right now. And now the two people, uh, the positions that manager of safety supervises, both the sheriff, that's open. They're going to op- look for a new sheriff. But also now our fire chief is gone for a very mysterious sex toy reason at a party and I think probably we could have uh, handled that better. David, contrast the handling of the coronavirus in communist China and Iran, unfree countries with no free press, versus in Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, and Italy. It shows that freedom is safer and the people who think the communist Chinese model is some kind of efficient great thing are 1,000 percent wrong. Eric. A week from tomorrow, on Saturday, March 7th, Colorado is going to have this big secret, which is called precinct caucuses. All of our hype and attention is on the presidential primary as part of Super Tuesday. And then you're going to turn around four days later, less than 100 hours later, and expect people to go to caucuses, which have received no attention. It's this hidden, archaic, anachronistic process. But yet that is how we continue to handle state and local races. It's ridiculous. Natasha. To follow up on what Patty was saying, um, firefighters, absolutely, such a vital part of our community. They have every reason to be able to let loose and have a nice party once a year. But maybe with two years of bad headlines now, it's time to rethink what that party looks like. (laughs) Time to say something nice about somebody. Patty. Denver Spirituals Project just got much needed attention from CBS. David. In the last two years, Internet fixed broadband speeds in the United States have risen by 76%. And that happens to coincide with the repeal of the so-called net neutrality regulation, which the doomsayers were saying was going to cripple the Internet. In fact, just the opposite happened. Eric. Patty touched this during the main part of the show, but uh, two former mayors, Federico Pena, for his vision that created DIA, the current problems notwithstanding, and Wellington Webb, who I've had a checkered history with, but who brought that thing under tough circumstances across the finish line. Natasha. Uh, two things really quickly. Um, the 18 restaurants and chefs and everything that received James Beard award nominations this week. But in addition, the new rhino at the Denver Zoo. Uh, yes, uh, the new baby rhino. The ears and the that's just unbelievable. It's a, it's a great, great shot. Well, that is all the time we have for this episode of Colorado Inside. Thank you so much for watching. You have not noticed yet, we have made our big change to PBS 12. So if you're on the website, please be sure to check it out. I think you'll like the changes and more fun stuff to come. It's going to be an exciting 2020. So for everybody here at PBS 12 and Colorado Inside Out, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for watching and tuning in. Good night.